That's not a list of names. That's a list of people groups. Staggering. Absolutely staggering. Think as well when Promise talks about the importance of grammar, how blessed we are to be able to read and write, and how understanding the significance of that has placed Christianity at the forefront of, of the educational movements of really the last 500 years. To have the Word of God in our own language, to be able to read it, to be able to understand it, to be able to analyze its grammar, you're all doing it. You may not realize you're doing it in any kind of formal way, but you are doing it. You are interpreting as you read, and how blessed we are to be able to do that. A couple of uh, months ago, the, uh, the financial community, really worldwide, was absolutely shocked when the largest bank in America, J.P. Morgan Chase, announced that their London trading group uh, had lost $2 billion in about six weeks. It turns out uh, later that the loss, uh, and they owned up at that, to that at the time, that it would probably exceed $2 billion, and indeed it has. Last I just looked, it's now approaching $9 billion lost in investing in what they call, quote, synthetic credit products, close quote. Now, if you don't understand what a synthetic credit product is, you're not alone. Because evidently, neither do the traders at J.P. Morgan Chase, right? They assumed incredible risks without understanding what it was that they were involving themselves in and ended up losing, still at this point and counting, $9 billion. What would possess a banking company that has been known for conservative and intelligent management to get involved in this kind of financial scheme, that they would actually threaten the capital base of the largest bank in the United States, and if that bank were to go down, it would take down the financial system with it. What would possess them to take on those kinds of risks? The answer to the question is really, really simple, actually. It's one word. It's the word greed. It is the word greed. It is that little green-eyed monster that lurks in the hearts of every single human being. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew 6. And we're going to be looking, beginning in verse 19. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew and this particular section of it, the Sermon on the Mount. As way of review for you, you'll remember that the key to the Sermon on the Mount lies in the ongoing comparisons that Jesus makes between The Pharisees, those who promoted an external form of righteousness based on outward behaviors, and true righteousness, which is an inner quality of righteousness, 
that is manifested by those who recognize their need for the grace of God and are, in the words of Jesus in chapter 5 and verse 3, the poor in spirit. It is the Pharisees and those who are poor in spirit that are continually being contrasted for us. Again, still reviewing and helping you to understand that, in chapter 5 and beginning in verse 21, Jesus goes through a number of illustrations in which he rejects the, the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. They had externalized the law into behaviors such that if, as long as they weren't committing this particular behavior, they thought that they were fine with God. And you remember in verse 20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So, moving into chapter 6, Jesus continues the comparisons, but, but here he begins to talk about the, the pharisaical uh, practice of the law. Chapter 5, it was their, their um, interpretation of the law. Now it's their practice of the law here in chapter 6. And in particular, when we, we get here to verses 19 and following, he's going to focus in on three issues. Verses 19 and following, all the way to chapter 7 and verse 6, there are really just three issues that Jesus will zone in on. One is wealth, the next is worry, and finally judgment. So 19 to 24, Jesus will deal with the issues of wealth. In verses 25 to 34, he'll deal with the issue of worry. And in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, he'll deal with the, uh, the issue of judgment. So it's wealth, worry, and judgment. And again, it's that contrast that he's constantly driving for. He is, he is focusing on the inward character of the heart, the inward character of heart that motivates the outward behaviors. This morning, we're going to start with the issue of wealth. The issue of wealth, we're not going to be able to get through it all this morning, so we're just going to get a start at it, beginning here in verse 19. But uh, Jesus gives us, 19 to 24, he gives us three contrasts. 19 to 24 is broken down into three contrasts. Verses 19 to 21 is a, a contrast having to do with investment strategies. Verses 22 and 23 is a contrast having to do with eyesight. And uh, chapter 6 and verse 24 is a contrast having to do with allegiances. So it's investment strategies, it's eyesight, and it's allegiances. And he gives us three of these, and they're all focused on the same point, the same message. And it's designed to, to drive that message home. And the message is simply this, that we must choose between God and greed. We have to make a choice. It is God or greed. We cannot have both. So let's take a look here at the first contrast, verses 19 21, and I'm calling it two conflicting investment strategies. Two conflicting investment strategies. You know, ever since the, the fall of Adam, mankind has been possessed by a drive to accumulate material wealth. 
And the, and the reason for the accumulation of that material wealth is, is basically that people are trying to insulate themselves from the consequences of living in a broken and fallen world. So people are pursuing wealth. They want to avoid the, these ugly consequences that come upon all of humanity because we live in this broken world brought about by Adam's first sin. So there's the idea that if we can just accumulate enough treasure that we can, we can build a firewall and the ugliness will not reach us. There are all kinds of strategies, by the way, to people try to do this. And there are a number of them that are sort of popular today. Right? Do I invest in gold? Is this the time to be buying precious metals and, and adding those to my portfolio? Or for others, it's real estate. Let's make real estate investments and, and they'll be safe and they'll provide a hedge against the future. Others invest in stocks and bonds. Still others in foreign currencies. And you know, we live in a really sort of unprecedented time because it was only a generation or so ago that it was not widely available to most people. Yet today in this congregation, I would be willing to bet that the majority of the people here actually have access to various investment strategies, if, if nothing else than through their retirement programs where they work. So we're all investors in some sense. Some people, uh, by the way, they just want to put their money under their mattress, and that's their investment strategy, right? I can remember when I was young, younger, anyway, and... Uh, at the uh, working in banking and having people ask me, you know, what was my, how did I balance my uh, retirement portfolio and so forth, and I told them I was in, investing in commodities, and uh, that was always, they say, really, you're a commodities uh, investor, and I said, yeah, I buy milk and eggs and bacon because I have four small children at home, so I'm investing in commodities. Um, And those of you who are raising children, you understand what I'm talking about. So investment strategies. Well, Jesus has something to say to us this morning. Something to say to us in terms of investment strategy. And this is the the really important thing. This investment strategy, if we follow his investment strategy, is risk-free. It is a risk-free investment strategy guaranteed to produce long-term gains. Risk-free investment strategy designed to produce long-term gains. So that ought to perk up your ears. That ought to perk up your ears. Let's take a look at what he has to say, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is confronting his disciples here. And he's confronting them with regard to their their relationship to material possessions, material wealth. And he he is criticizing both their activities and their orientation towards wealth. He begins by criticizing their activities with regard to wealth. And you see it right here in verse 19, do not store up. Do not store up wealth. Now, grammatically, and I promise it's really important that we understand the grammar, right? 
grammatically, this could be just a statement of a, of a general precept. This is not the right thing to do. Do not store up wealth here on earth. But it's also possible, and in my opinion, far more likely, that he is actually issuing a, a prohibition for them to stop something that they're already doing. That it's not a, not a prohibition against beginning to do something, but it's actually a command to stop doing something that they're already doing. Thus we, I believe, legitimately can translate this, stop storing up. Stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, the righteousness of the Pharisees, remember this contrast is going on, the Pharisees were lovers of money. Lovers of money. We're told that in Luke chapter 16 and verse 14. It was very, very important for them to accumulate material wealth. The disciples were a product of that religious system. And so it had very much influenced them, by the way, just the way our culture influences us. And so Jesus is saying to them, you are overly concerned about the accumulation of material wealth and you need to stop. You need to stop. Now let me give you a a couple of illustrations why I can make this rather bold assertion that these uh, 12 men were very much concerned with the accumulation of earthly treasures and were actually giving themselves to the practice of it even while they were following the Master. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. You can write them down and check them on your own. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8, Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples to do ministry in his name, and he says something very interesting to them. He tells them, instructs them actually, they are not to charge money for their ministry. They are not to charge people for the ministry that they're performing among them. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 25, Matthew there records the the astonishment that the disciples have at Jesus' teaching that wealth is not a sign of God's favor. And that indeed, to be wealthy, Jesus says, is, is to make it more difficult to enter the kingdom, not easier. And they're astonished by that kind of a saying. In that same chapter, Matthew 19 and verse 27, Peter says something very interesting, and Peter acts as a spokesman for the twelve. He, he normally articulates what they're thinking. And Peter says there that, oh, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And the implication of that statement is, is that they should be compensated for that. We have left everything to follow you, and it's unspoken, but it's kind of there in the context. We should be compensated, Lord, for the amount of sacrifice that we're making to follow you. By the way, that wasn't technically true, was it? They had not left everything, certainly not Peter. We know according to John chapter 21 and verse 3 that after the uh, resurrection, uh, Peter decides to go back to the fishing business. So it's evident, ev- evident in Peter's life at least that he had not left everything behind. That wasn't technically true. So there's evidence for the disciples to be involved as followers of Messiah, yet at the same time, one eye on him and one eye on their pocketbook, concerned about the accumulation of earthly treasure. It was an issue in their lives, and Jesus addresses it. He tells them to stop doing this. Now, their orientation is also something he criticizes here in verse 19. 
So stop storing up, and then you see, for yourselves. You see that little expression there, for yourselves. Grammatically, the the expression here uh, gives the emphasis of Jesus' statement, and, and his criticism here is not upon having wealth, nor is it upon accumulating wealth. It is upon the purpose for which you have wealth or accumulate wealth, and that is that you have accumulated it for your own consumption to the exclusion of others who are in need. Stop storing up, underline this, for yourselves, earthly treasure. Stop building your bank account for your own benefit and consumption. Stop doing that. Do not build the treasures on earth designed to provide for just you. Designed to provide for just you. Now, Jesus points out here in verse 19, there's a folly involved in that kind of sinful investment activity, that kind of strategy. And uh, he points it out in in a series, really, of illustrations, again in verse 19. He says, right, that the earthbound strategy is is subject to numerous attacks that diminish its value. Stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. These are just illustrations of the kinds of risks associated with an earthbound investment strategy. Moths. We don't worry much about moths in our day and age, but it was a very serious concern in the first century. Clothing in the first century was of was highly prized. It was a very valuable thing, particularly expensive clothing that was imported. Things made from fabrics such as silk or wool that would be highly uh, processed and then it would be either bleached uh, a very, very bright white or it would be dyed, for example, a deep purple. These were considered very valuable articles of clothing and, and they were very expensive and they were a way to accumulate wealth and flaunt your wealth. And Jesus says, this kind of investment strategy is foolish because of the moth. Because of the moth. So I went on the internet and I, and I looked up moths a little bit. Because I don't really know that much about moths. And, and probably you don't either, but you're about to. Okay? You're probably about to learn more about moths maybe than you ever knew or care to know. But it's interesting, I think. Did you know that an adult moth does not eat your clothing? does not eat your clothing. So when you see the wings, don't worry, it's not eating. In fact, they're not even able to eat. It is the, it is the larvae of the moth that does the eating. And according to one red, uh, website I, I read, they only eat actually for a few days in the, in the larvae state. And then they, they become enclosed in a cocoon and uh, they become what's called a, a, I think it's called a pupa, if I got that right. Trying to go back to seventh grade biology, you know. And uh, I think it's a larvae and then a pupa and then uh, maybe it's the adult moth or something like that. Anyway, it's only the larvae and it's only for a few days. But here, this is interesting, I, I thought. A, a, the larvae of a moth, a single one, can eat up to 12 centimeters of clothing per minute. That's a lot. <laughs> What is it, 2.2 centimeters to the inch or something like that? 
tw- up to 12 centimeters per minute. This thing, it's a good thing that it only lives a few days, right? <laughs> you wouldn't have a single stitch of clothing left. Even these, even these expensive garments, in a matter of just a couple of days, Jesus says the moth can completely destroy them. And I think it goes beyond that, too. I, I think it's the picture of is the fact that this little teeny you know, larvae that you could just squish between two fingers, there's not, like, nothing to it, can completely devastate your earth-bound investment strategy. It can take it all away. So Jesus said, look out for the moth. It'll eat your clothes. And he goes on and, and he says, uh, look out for the rust, right? Where moth and rust destroy. Again, another interesting word, and uh, I think a, a poor translation, actually. The, uh, the word, the Greek word translated here, rust, actually means eating. Eating, E-A-T-I-N-G, eating or devouring. And uh, it, it really never refers to rust or corrosion or tarnish or, or any of those sorts of things. That's not what the word refers to anywhere in either the Old or New Testament, except the way it's translated here. James chapter 5 and verse 3 speaks of, of corrosion or rust that attaches to precious metals, but he uses a different word. So I think we actually have a mistranslation here. Jesus is not speaking in verse 19. He says we're moth or, or eating destroy. He's not speaking about precious metals. He's actually, I think, speaking about agricultural products. And the word here is, is, a, is a reference to uh, what we call vermin. Now, that's a nice word, vermin. What is, what is vermin? Well, vermin are things like rats and mice and locusts and birds and all kinds of, of creatures that come in and destroy by consuming agricultural wealth. There are the, they're the, the various creatures that can, can flock in on a field of standing grain and in a matter of a few hours strip it clean. They're the kind of creatures that can get into your grain silos where you have accumulated a tremendous amount of wealth and they can consume it in a short period of time. They're the kind of creatures that can spread infection to your herds and so what appears to be a tremendous amount of wealth locked up in, in grazing of animals can in a very short period of time be overcome by disease and it's all wiped out. So I think what Jesus is talking about here when, he said, when it's translated rust, but it really means eating, is that he is warning against the loss of agricultural wealth and how easily that can happen. Yeah, your clothing is not very secure. The moths can get in, and in a matter of, you know, just a few minutes, they can chew up your most valuable garment. Well, guess what? A plague of locusts can descend upon your field, and in a very short period of time, all of your accumulated agricultural wealth, all the land wealth that you have, can be completely stripped away as well. Again, it's, a, it's an illustration of how transient wealth can be. Just as the city dweller's fabrics that are, that are soft and colorful can be destroyed, so can your fields, so can your barns can be stripped away from you as well. Third, whatever the moths or the vermin don't get, the thieves can take, right? 
So he says, verse 19, where thieves break in and steal. Literally, dig through. Break in is translated break in, but it means to dig through. And that's because of the houses of that period of time were made of a sun-dried clay brick. And so it was with a little bit of persistence, you would be able to dig through the side of a person's home and get access to the home, and you could carry away whatever wealth that they had hidden there. So again, these are, these are illustrations, but they are illustrating the, the absolute folly of giving our lives to the accumulation of material wealth because it can so easily slip through our fingers. So easily slip through our fingers. Now, we're not worried so much about moss. We don't worry so much about vermin. We don't really worry so much about thieves. But we have our own issues in our day that can strip us of wealth. Anyone hear about a housing bubble, right? Or a, a dot-com bubble or a debt bubble or, you know, there's, it's, like, uh, it's like at a birthday party. There are bubbles floating everywhere. And when they pop, your wealth pops with it. All kinds of things. You know, to these illustrations here, we could add some additional teaching that, that Jesus brings us about the reality of the transitory nature of wealth. You might, you might be able to evade the moth. You might be able to evade the vermin. You might be able to evade the, the uh, thieves. But ultimately, death will strip it from your fingers. Ultimately, death will strip wealth from your fingers. I was going to turn you there, but in the interest of time, I won't do that. But you can mark it down, Luke 12, 13 to 21. Jesus there speaks about the, the man who had become very successful agriculturally, and his barns were, were filled with the grain that he had, had harvested from his fields. And the, and the grain's still coming in. He's just very productive. And so he says to himself, I'm going to build some more and bigger barns in order to store all the wealth that I've accumulated so that I can say to my soul, take it easy, rest, relax. You've got nothing to worry about. God says to him that night, you fool. Your soul will be demanded of you tonight. It does you no good. It does you no good. You, you, may, uh, you may somehow evade these pests. But ultimately, death is going to strip you. As they say, there are no trailer hitches on the back of a funeral coach, right? No U-Hauls to the cemetery. No pockets in the funeral shroud. Death will strip you, and it will strip me, every one of us. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. He goes on in verse 17, he says, Therefore instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So in light of, of this reality, what would Jesus have us do? What would Jesus have us do? Answer, change your investment strategy. Change your investment strategy. Verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in 
or steal. You notice the contrast here. He begins in verse 20. He says, but instead of this earthbound investment strategy, instead adopt a heavenly investment strategy. The contrast there. The safety lies in, in sending the treasures on ahead. Send them, send them to the place where moths and, and rust or vermin and thieves cannot get to them. See, only in this life can the moth destroy your wealth. Only in this life can the vermin destroy your wealth. Only in this life can the thief take your wealth from you. If you have invested it in the next, it's out of reach. Because in the age to come, these pests will not be there. They won't be there. Our investments are safe when we send them on. So that part's easy. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward. So this week I asked myself a question. I said, okay, I get that. It's not really mysterious at all. But there's a question that, that sort of is, is floating in my mind. Maybe it's floating in yours. The question is, what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? I actually understand how to store up treasures on earth. I'm, I'm actually kind of good at it. And I think you are too. Our culture reinforces that behavior in us all the time. It, and it sort of flows out of the corruption that still lies within. So I understand what the words mean. Don't do that, but do this. But what does it mean? What does it mean to store up he- uh, treasures in heaven? So I started getting the commentaries down off the shelf. I thought, okay, let's, let's find out what the best and the brightest have to say. So here's some excerpts for you of a number of very prominent Bible teachers and their commentaries when they attempt to answer this question. So we have D.A. Carson, fine New Testament scholar. He says, quote, Whatever is of good and eternal significance that comes out of what is done on earth. Whatever is of good and eternal significance that comes out of what is done on earth. That's what it means to store up treasures in heaven. I thought, eh, eh, it doesn't help me that much. All right, well, here's another one. Uh, His name is David Turner. He writes, um, one that's probably even less helpful, (laughs) he writes, uh, a work done to implement heaven's values here on earth. Work done to implement heaven's values here on earth. Okay. Or how about J. Dwight Pentecost, old Dow Seminary guy? He says, quote, Godliness is heavenly wealth. Godliness is heavenly wealth. Okay. How about John MacArthur? He always has the right answer, right? I mean, half of you got his Bible sitting, you know, John MacArthur author. Anyway, uh, I should not have said that. <laughs> Does say that, though. Uh, here's, what, here's what Dr. MacArthur says. Uh, he quote, time, energy, and possessions used to serve others and to further the Lord's work. So there's this continual theme about sort of being involved in the Lord's work, it seems. How about D. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Jones writes, use of earthly riches for the benefit of others who will meet you in heaven. Give you one more. 
fellow by the name of Charles Correls. He says, quote, acquiring heavenly rewards through righteous deeds. I just wasn't satisfied with any of those. And so I uh, used my computer and did a little electronic concordance search for the expression treasure in heaven. I just, I just kind of put it in the treasure in heaven. What, what comes up? Interestingly, it, it appears in two places in the New Testament. Two places in the New Testament. The expression treasures in heaven. Other than here. So it appears in the context of the rich young ruler. We find that in Matthew um, 19, verse 21, and then in the other synoptic gospels, Mark 10, 21, Luke 18, 22. So Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. It appears in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, and there it appears in a context of of Jesus instructing his disciples that they, they are not to worry about their physical needs. So Luke chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make money uh, belts, make for yourselves money belts which you do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. So that's interesting. In two times, he, he sort of combines, uh, the two places the expression appears, he, he combines the, the treasure in heaven with the thought of charitable giving. And I think money is, is definitely in the context, and that's been one of my problems with, with all of those other definitions. It's, it's clearly money in verse 19, and then we, if we flip to verse 20 and it's, all, and it's not about money, it seems to me that that doesn't really work so good. So here's my definition of treasures in heaven. I think it means, and I quote, I think it means a, a willingness to, to willingly restrict to some degree and to some degree impoverish yourselves. I'll read it again. Uh, it means to be willing to restrict and to some degree impoverish yourself in this life by giving to those in need because you believe in the certainty of the life to come. Let me try that again. Storing up treasures in heaven means to willingly restrict and to some degree impoverish yourself in this life by giving to those in need because you believe in the certainty of the life to come. It it represents a change of priorities, a recognition that that we're only passing through, that life doesn't terminate here. It's not all about what goes on here. It's about the kingdom to come. And because we believe the kingdom is coming and it's going to be a better place than than where we are here and that sin is going to be dealt with there and not here, that we are willing to forego things here in order to be there, to help people to be there. Notice how Jesus goes on in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He provides a a reason here, right? The the word for gives us a reason. 
And he says the, the, the choice of our investment strategy is, is significant because it reveals the state of our heart. It reveals the, the orientation of our heart. What is the heart? Well, biblically speaking, the heart is the, is the center of who we are. It's the center of our personality. It embraces our mind. It embraces our emotions, our affections, our will. All of these things are what the Bible is referring to when it talks about our heart. For wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever we cherish at the, at the deepest level, Jesus is saying, is inevitably what controls the, the direction of our lives. It shapes our lives. John Calvin says, if we treasure honor as our highest good, then ambition will control us. If pleasure, then self-indulgence. And I'll add on to Calvin here, if wealth, then greed. If that is the center of who we are, that will shape our lives. That will, that will control the direction that we're heading. So to lay up treasure in heaven is, to, is really the, is the result of changing, a change occurring in the orientation at the deepest level of your being. You're willing to forego in this life because you're convinced of the next. The more convinced you are of the next the more willing you'll be to let go of this. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, Moses records there that for the children of God, our hearts are to be consumed not by the things of this world, but by the love of God, right? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It is the love of God. Great. Let's go home before it starts to hurt. Right? Now we can't do that. So now we get to the place called application. Application. How do I know? How do I know if materialism has put its hooks in me? How do I know? Is there any kind of self-diagnostic that I can do? I think there is. I think there is. So let me, let me give you five questions of, of a self-diagnostic. And before God, why don't you just let the Spirit begin to sift you? Number one, materialism has its hooks in me if the accumulation or protection of wealth occupies my thoughts. If the accumulation or protection of wealth occupies my thoughts. That means that if, and if my, when I'm alone... If those are the things that begin to occupy my thinking, how do I get more or how do I hang on to what I have? I would suggest to you that materialism has 
put a hook in you. Second question. I'll know materialism has its hooks in me if I live beyond my means and am regularly discontented with what God has entrusted to me. If I'm living beyond my means and I am regularly discontented with my station in life, those things that God has entrusted to me, discontentment. Third, I'll know materialism has its hooks in me when if I am discouraged, disappointed, depressed, or dismayed, and that means anxious, then I seek to find joy and relief by buying something. Buying something. When I'm feeling bad, I go shopping. Then I would suggest that materialism has a hook in you. Fourth diagnostic. I'll know materialism has a hook in me if my home is filled with things that I don't use. My home is filled with things I don't use. Fifth, I know materialism has a hook in me if I struggle to be generous. If it's a struggle for me to be generous. Beloved, if I can suggest to you that if any one of these five is true of you, to the extent that it is true of you, materialism has a grip on you. I can also suggest to you out of humility and and honesty that I think it has a grip in all of us. To one degree or another, I think it has a grip in all of us. I don't think we're unlike those disciples at all. One eye on Jesus and one eye on our 401k. We believe He's coming again. He's going to establish His kingdom, but just in case, I need to make sure I take care of myself. How do I escape? How do I escape the trap of materialism? Is there a way out? There is. There is a way out. It begins by asking God's help in recognizing the lie that you're telling to yourself about stuff. There is a, there is a lie that you're, that you're repeating to yourself with regard to the stuff that you're accumulating or want to accumulate that somehow this is a source of contentment and joy. The things that only God can provide, you, you, are, you are lying to yourself when you think you can get it somewhere else. And you need to ask God to help you to see that lie. And I think that lie is probably a little bit different for all of us. So ask God's help. Secondly, is to confess your sin to God. When God has helped you to, to see the lie, then confess the lie and your belief of that lie as sin. It 
This is not going to be just like a one-time event. All I got to do is just get alone with God for about an hour. He'll show me where I've been lying to myself. I'll confess that, and then bang, materialism will never touch me again if it were only so easy. If it were only so easy. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. You're going to have good days and bad days. You're going to win and you're going to lose. Confess your sin to God. Three, regularly review the gospel. This is why we need to regularly do this. Regularly review the gospel and be reminded about Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Be reminded, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that he who has died to sin, how shall he live in it any longer? That is, that, that you died with Christ and sin, this sin, the sin of greed and materialism, no longer has to control you. It is no longer your master. We often submit when we don't have to. And that's where the gospel helps, is to be reminded of that, that this sin no longer grips my heart. I no longer am driven like I once was by my passions. I can say no. I can say no. And I must say no. Meditate upon Jesus' teachings. That's number four. Meditate upon Jesus' teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you can go back all the way to to chapter 5 and begin with the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. They are so countercultural. And so as we meditate on this, the Spirit of God uses His Word to, to continue to cleanse us and to change the way we think. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind is renewed by the Spirit of God as He uses His Word to wash us. Meditate on the Word of God. Fifth and finally, look for and then begin to practice small steps of generosity. Look for and then begin to practice small steps of generosity. Let let obedience begin to build a habit of obedience in your life. If I'm right about the treasures in heaven, then they are are connected to uh, the way we handle our finances. It is the voluntary restriction of our standard of living in this life in order to benefit those less fortunate than we are because we believe in the life to come. Not because we think we're earning any kind of brownie points with God, but because we're convinced something better is coming. And that happens incrementally. Incrementally. I think I'm going to end there today. We'll be back next week to this topic again. We've got more to say. Let me just end it with that self-diagnosis and method to find our way out. May the Spirit of God sift us this week. Hmm? May the Spirit of God sift us. Let's come back next week ready to hear from Him again. 
Beloved, if there, is a, if there is a cultural sin, I think this is it. I think this is it. Let's pray. Our Father, You have given us, according to the Apostle Paul, all the riches of Christ in glory with Him. When we think about that, we're stunned. Here we are on, in this life, on this broken planet, trying to scratch it out. And yet you have freely given us, superabundantly, out of your riches, everything we need. But our Father, our faith is weak. The flesh is strong. The Spirit is willing. We need your help. Oh God, please, may your Holy Spirit work in us. May He use His Word like a skillful brain surgeon, carefully cutting open, exposing those dark and secret places in our own heart, where we cling to these things. Oh Lord, may you transform us as a people. We are your people by faith in Christ. Our destiny is secure in Christ. He is returning and, and soon. Oh Lord, may we have both eyes fixed looking for that blessed hope. Our Father, I pray for those in our midst this morning who do not have the blessed hope, for whom the return of Jesus Christ is not something to belong for, but something to fear and cower and turn away from. And I pray, O Lord, for Your mercy and grace for them that You would open their eyes to the truth of their own impoverished condition. They may be wealthy in the things of this world or not, but without Jesus Christ as their atoning sacrifice, they are blind and naked and poor. Please, O Lord, may You help them to call out to Christ to save them. We ask in His name. Amen. God bless you, beloved.